the grandest subject that the whole world affords to young men, the only policy whose effects will forever influence the world for good, is that which is but the enlargement and perfection of our personal truth and justice. Even in the last few years, when the whole country was agitated with the renewal of old strife and old disaffection, their effects were dilated without a shadow of ill will here. Such opportunities the historical society presents to students, but to grasp them, it is necessary to cast off all unworthy prejudice and to let the better part of nature have free play. Moral and intellectual benefits are only to be found by those who have cast off the dress of mortality. But let no man think that cynicism is the high road to success. The leaders in the world are not cynics, but enthusiasts, and to their honesty and purpose is progress due. The true motive power of life is enthusiasm, and to the young it is natural. We are indulging in no daydreams, when we try to the best of our ability to puzzle out the truth amongst us from many conflicting opinions, but if we wish to find the truth, we must be absolutely just. To raise the nation or the individual ever so little, we must hope and work for much, and have a high ideal standard towards the realisation of which all our efforts may tend. We are young enough to hope, we are old enough to act, and in hope and action lies the future of ourselves, our country, and our race. A young man's speech, a speech full of the idealism and hope of youth. An auditorial address delivered on the 13th of November, 1872, to the College Historical Society of Trinity College, Dublin. The speaker was the auditor, Abraham Stoker, better known as in later years as Bram Stoker, who as an old man wrote a novel called Dracula. Uh, the society was then just over a hundred years old, and this year its bicentenary is being celebrated. It was founded on the 21st of March, 1770, and during the past week Trinity has resounded with the name and fame of the role of honour of those who honoured the society who learned in the society, who graced the society in the past. A list of random names in front of me is an indication, I think, of how much this society has been bound up with Irish history over the years. Former members of the College Historical Society, Wolf Tone, Thomas Addis Emmett, Robert Emmett, Thomas Davis, John Blake Dillon, Isaac Butt, Edward Carson, Dermot Coffey, Gerald Sweetman, Owen O'Mahony, Lord Glenavy, Alfred Percival Graves, Standish O'Grady, Douglas Hyde, Thomas Moore, Joseph Lefanu, Abraham Stoker again, John Kells Ingram, Oliver Sinjin Gogarty, Oscar Wilde, Sean O'Hagarty. The list could go on for a very long time. Now, although the society was, as we've said, founded in 1770, it inherited, in fact, the papers, the records and the tradition and indeed the status of an earlier society called the Historical Club which was originally known as Burke's Club. It was founded in 1747 and the Burke in question was of course Edmund Burke. And so it was natural that Edmund Burke and his thought um, were especially commemorated in the bicentenary lecture given to the society last Tuesday evening by Senator Edward Kennedy. 
The College Historical Society has been the call the greatest of all the schools of the artist, fitting then that Edmund Burke was instrumental in its founding. And this society carries the traditions of open debate, barring no point of view, a center of controversy and discussion. It has heard the voices of Irish nationalists and Wolf Tone and Robert Emmett and John Blake Dillon and Thomas Davis, as well as those who oppose their thoughts and actions. Men of letters and science and government pass through this society as light through a prism to go on to form their own colors and patterns in life. The society indeed has always had a high opinion of itself and of its destiny uh, and the destiny of its members. Here's Lord Ashburn addressing the society on November the 9th, 1859. There is indeed but one responsibility I know of that you incur on entering our guild. It is to be patriotic Irishmen. This society is now in its 90th year, called into being at first at the moment when the spirit of an awakening freedom and a newborn nationality began to breathe upon this land. It has watched that freedom's progress, tenderly nursed that nationality. For 90 years it has sent forth the best and greatest Irishmen. Gentlemen, as I speak these words, great memories come thick upon me. This society had existed for scarcely 12 short years when Ireland was roused from ages of torpor and slavery and a people of serfs became on one day a nation of free men. And if you ask me how this was accomplished, I answer preeminently by the eloquence sent forth from this society. And if I am to say what guarded that freedom and that independence well and long, and when that freedom fell and that independence was extinguished in the ignominy and despair of the nation, what was it mitigated the disaster and half effaced the shame, I must answer again, it was the eloquence sent forth from this society. And as the mind passes over on years and years of our country's oppression and suffering and sin, what was it that still guarded her interests and pleaded her cause? I must answer still, it was the eloquence sent forth by this society. And when the emancipation had at last been carried, and that great justice had been done, what was it, through times of plague, of rebellion, of famine, ever held forth hope and comfort, and what at last has helped to win for Ireland peace, prosperity, and plenty? I answer still, it was the eloquence sent forth by this society. Finally, if I am asked what it is that this day reflects the ancient fame of Ireland in the British Senate, brings back the bygone glory of her bar, and makes the old halls ring again, I answer, it is the eloquence sent forth by this society. And we, young men, what have we to do with this? It is a grand position that we stand in. Behind us stretches away the history of our country over ages of sorrow and oppression. It brightens as it approaches the present, and the future is full of hope and promise. In the day of Ireland's sore distress, the men sent forth from this society did not fail their country. Shall it be said that in the hour of her prosperity, we were found wanting? Gentlemen, these are the great thoughts by which I would seek to rouse you, my fellow members, to renewed exertions. 
These are the inducements that I would hold out to those who have not yet joined us to do so now. I have no others to offer. I desire to offer no others. For if you are not roused by ambition, if you care not for friendship or good fellowship, if you are cold to patriotism, I have no wish that you should become one of us. The word patriotism indeed echoes often in the speeches of the young men of the College Historical Society, and if it has a rival, it is the word liberty, following, of course, Edmund Burke. Here again is Senator Kennedy. Liberty, said Burke, is a general principle and the clear right of all or of none. Partial freedom seems to me a most invidious form of slavery. In America, we live with a form of partial freedom. Over the past 20 years, there have been assaults on the racial oppression, with the initiative coming mainly from the black community, working through the institutions of our land, the courts, the legislature, and presidential leadership. It appeared as though one barrier to equality after another was falling. Men of concern from the white population joined the surging effort, anxious to participate, inspired by their instincts for good and the courage and selfless dedication of black men in the, in the front of the movement. But the changes did not come so rapidly. The barriers only appeared to fall, giving the illusion of progress. In matters of minority housing, employment and public education, reasonable expectations were far from realized. The passage of laws was one thing, their execution quite another. Delays, exceptions, and studies, and administrator apathy all sapped the hope of the waiting minority. The resulting frustrations and impatience gave rise to a new militancy, a harsh rhetoric, fearful to many, and these fears were played upon by forces of reaction. Over the last few years of decline in the civil rights momentum, the voice of the moderate man was not clear. Though many such men remained, Many others left the field. The attention of some was diverted by the war. In the heat of the struggle, some were afraid to speak out against the excesses of the extremes, and many leaders upon whom we depended, both black and white, were lost to violence. Whatever the cause, the tide has shifted in America away from progress and equity. Change causes disruption and discomfort. The lessening of the intensity of that change brings back the warm security of the past. So it is that for the moment, many may find comfort in this turn of events. But this sense of well-being is false. The mine has merely been closed. The fire still rages within. Burke's warning that nothing is security to any individual but the common interest of all still holds. Senator Kennedy carried his argument to the wider world scene. We are, then, engaged in a profound struggle for the future of our common civilization. The discontent and the ferment are realities. Only by reason change amid a changing world can we hope to preserve those human values which Burke struggled to protect and which were summarized by the founders of my own nation in the phrase, pursuit of happiness, We may not yet understand the complexities of our dilemma. We do know that the future will either be one of increasing justice for our fellow man and the liberation of the individual to enrich his own destiny, 
or it will be a future of increasing repression and control, if a future at all. Discontent must either be met or suppressed. To meet it is liberation, to suppress it is the end of liberty. It was my genius countryman, Benjamin Franklin, who said, they that give us liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. Nor, may I add, will they have them. What will the outcome be? No man can know the future, and Burke, first of all, would scorn one who tried to predict it rather than shape it. It is now almost seven years since the President of the United States came to this city, not to the land of his birth, as he said, but the land for which he held such great affection. John Kennedy referred to the age in which we live, an age when history moves with the tramp of earthquake feet, an age when a handful of men and nations have the power literally to devastate mankind. But he did not speak in despair or with a sense of hopelessness. Those feelings had no place in his Irish heart. Across the gulfs and barriers that now divide us, he said, we must remember that there are no permanent enemies. Hostility today is a fact, but it is not a ruling law. The supreme reality of our time is our indivisibility as children of God and our common vulnerability on this planet. I choose to believe that Burke would have agreed with that view of reality, and I can only hope that we who remain will choose to work from it. The thanks of the Society was conveyed to Senator Kennedy after Tuesday night's meeting by the present auditor, Mr. Ian Ash. The College Historical by the way, Society, by the way, was, I understand, the first to use this word auditor for the chairman of a university society, a word which is now common in all such societies over here. Uh, I, I talked to Ian Ash later and asked him uh, whether he felt that the society today is very conscious of its tradition, one might say, the weight of its tradition. Uh, no, I wouldn't say all the time. I'd say occasionally when one looks back and looks at the membership list, the former membership list, you realise the people it's produced. And uh, the ordinary membership, it's got home to them now, in this year, uh, the tradition that exists within the society. In fact, this uh, bicentenary has produced, I think, a pride amongst members, and that the membership has now rocketed to about 900, and it could well be 1,000 before the year is out. And is that much more than the membership has tended to be? <clears throat> well, the membership up to now has been between six to 700, and uh, there's no question about it this week has done a, a great deal of good for the society within college. Well, now, has it done a great deal of good for anybody else than the society? The trouble about societies in universities, in other words, tiny academic uh, subgroves within academic groves, the, the trouble is that it all seems to convey a bit of Mandarinism, doesn't it? A bit of elitism. Uh, <clears throat> well, I don't know. My personal opinion is that everything is based on elitism. 
that I've seen so many socialist governments get into power. You have elitist government before very long. Now, to come back to the society angle, you have uh, the hist. It's yes, it is to a certain extent based on elitism, but it's doing a very fine job as far as I'm concerned. The angle now will be to make it an international society. Now, up to this, we have purely asked people from Ireland and the British Isles to guest, but from now on, we have the opportunity and we have the reputation so that people will, in fact, come, I imagine, from over from the States or from Europe to guest at this society. What do you see as the real function of a society like this, then? Do you, is it to, <coughs> to make its members... Uh, possible politicians to make them to... It's everything. I've seen, uh, you know, I've seen people come in, make the maiden speeches, gauche, raw, etc., and they leave very, very solid people uh, after about four years. Now, uh, <coughs> debating, as a bit debating society, debating has, in fact, I think, had it. I think that um, eventually the history will turn into a type of discussion forum you bring a guest along and it's a question-answer affair rather than actual debate because live television uh, and accessibility of personalities now has meant that debating uh, is... Out. It's, it's, it's out. It's you mean in the old pro-con kind of... The old pro-con, I think, has become a bore. Perhaps we're becoming more and more aware that there aren't just two sides to every no. story but a hundred sides. <laughs> so uh, you think then that Societies like this are, I suppose, at a bit of a crossroads, but they re- definitely have a future. Oh, unquestionably, they must. You see, the point is that freshers come into a university and they, uh, they're looking, they're trying, seeking to express themselves. They come to the traditional debating society, but I can see even within the hiss that things are changing. In fact, uh, occasionally I myself ask for a speaker to the motion rather than for or against, and I think this will be the order of the day from now on. Indeed, it was very much the case on Wednesday evening when there was a discussion on the topic, Burke's dictum, that the only liberty is a liberty connected with order. The speeches were hardly pro or con. Indeed, uh, Senator McCarthy, Senator Eugene McCarthy, who led the discussion, seemed to be almost thinking aloud, working out a pragmatic framework for freedom in order. We've had a rather strange reversal of thought uh, reflected in many ways uh, in the United States now. Uh, Working on down from, well, the acceptance certainly of theological revelation to questioning of philosophy to a point now where one might say that there are many who say the proper study of mankind is is animals. Uh, There's a lot to be said for it. Two or three rather, rather popular books, The Territorial Imperative and a book on aggression, which many people have uh, taken up as a way of explaining all forms of social behavior. There are, I think, some things to be, to be said for, for these studies, but it's moved to a rather unusual application, this concern over animals, in that we find, especially among women in the States now, a refusal. I know one who won't wear the fur of an animal that has reflecting eyes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, she hasn't explained it yet. But, uh, uh, others will not wear the fur of animals that uh, have not been domesticated. If you're a domesticated mink, you're in trouble. With her, but uh, if you can remain somehow wild, you can die a natural death. 
uh, under difficult circumstances. Uh, these distinctions not growing necessarily out of the reflection on the animal and its social behaviors, but of a rather strange and extreme turning away from a somewhat reasoned judgment within the context of history. And it's within this context, I think, that we have to seek to, to establish some rules of order today, not by old precedents and not necessarily by what's handed down, not any kind of complete and certain order that fits together, but a kind of moving determination of what the rules are and what the principles are and what the confines of order are within which we can move towards independence and personal realization. And as we attempt to do that, I say there are two or three observations that are important. We're operating under a somewhat different time scheme, I think, from any that was accepted in the past. Uh, there's no one seriously talking excepting some of the astrologers uh, about the second millennium. I think an encouraging sign. We have more people worried about 1984, and some in our country worried more about 1972. But, uh, <laughs> but certainly... About 1984 is a more serious and important year than the year 2000. Also, I think some changes in our general conception of, of space. And this, I think, is quite unrelated to uh, the moonshot. In every part of the world now, people are concerned about things that are happening in every other part of the world. The old idea that uh, Africa was simply a dark continent that need not concern us and that China was the sleeping dragon and so on. Uh, this has all been set aside and all of these continents and peoples and nations uh, demand some attention from us and not just attention but almost every day uh, some kind of a judgment and, and some commitment. You say, well, within what framework do we make that judgment and within what framework do we make that commitment? I would say that generally it must be a more flexible order. It must be one which is more ready to change and one which must allow much more for personal determination and for the definition of individual responsibility. If I could cite two or three examples from the United States and our Bill of Rights, and we speak of as the freedoms guaranteed to Americans to indicate the complexity and the need for a rather well, I should not say easy, but quick response. The notion of freedom of speech is, is quite a simple one, and it's easy to declare. And we have a rather good tradition of it in the United States, but what people had in mind when that amendment to the Constitution was drafted was a society very different from ours and very different forms of news, communication, development, and really very different kind of educational system. And to simply say that you guarantee to everyone the right to say what he, what he thinks was perhaps the best way to ensure that what at least what people had by way of truth would, would get to those who were interested in it, or at least to some who were. But today with the kind of concentration of control and domination, the idea of simple freedom of expression has to be explained in terms really not of the right of a man to say whatever he wants to say when he has no means of saying it, but what's probably even 
the fundamental thing, the right of, of a person to hear the truth. And so you say, well, how can you guarantee that? And, and there's no real way to do it excepting to ensure within a kind of pressing, if not an oppressive, system that more people will be free to speak. And in consequence of that, you hope that more of those who are in need of the truth or who are seeking it will hear it, because unless you can determine in advance what the truth is that is to be heard, uh, you can't really say who is to speak and who is not to speak. We find this conflict running in our country, and not only there, but in other parts of the world, as to whether you should move towards some kind of centrally determined programming, especially uh, we have it with television now in the United States, or whether you ought to allow it to be run individually and separately. And I, I have a feeling that we're moving in one way since we started out with rather free radio and television to an advocacy at least to more control, whereas here in Ireland and in England, where they started out with control, they're tending to move in the other direction. I think it indicates there's no real solution to it, that you move it around in the hope that somewhere you strike a kind of balance between freedom of the individual to speak and to hear and a kind of social control which is essential. Wednesday evening's discussion was very much an international occasion. The distinguished Greek thinker and statesman, Professor Andreas Papandreou, spoke in a rather different key to Senator McCarthy. Uh, he asked some fundamental questions about the working of democracy today and came up with some rather disquieting answers about the increasing influence of what he called non-legitimised enclaves of power, both in the West and in the East, particularly the growth of military technocratic power. He ended rather somberly, but with a moving plea for action. The democratic vision is getting dimmer by the day. Popular sovereignty, having practically become the universal basis of legitimacy for the modern state, is rapidly turning into a mere slogan, and liberty is under retreat. The new mushrooming order is the law and order that appeals to the silent majorities and to the very vocal minorities of the establishment which hold the key to the gates of power. This, no doubt, is a reflection of a highly dynamic process, a process set in motion by the thrust of the two new empires to consolidate or expand their spheres of influence, to divide solidly and permanently the world into two airtight compartments, to subjugate the new nations of the world in the context of a new imperialism, no less awesome than its older classical form. For my generation, that following the defeat of fascism and Nazism, hoped for a democratic, progressive, and peaceful world, it is not easy to contemplate a new totalitarian era. And it is our supreme duty, therefore, to act and act now. The struggle for human freedom today has two meaningful dimensions. Globally, we must act to strengthen the United Nations. We must act to support every genuine national liberation or national independence movement 
We must, we must support every effort to break the vice of bipolarity, always mindful of the fact that the road to genuine internationalism goes through genuine national independence. At home, wherever that may be, we must resist every invasion of our freedom, and we must act forcefully to reinstate or to assert effective democratic popular sovereignty through new political institutions that make possible the active participation of the citizen in the social decision-making process. Above all, we must have the courage, the courage to listen carefully to the quests of the new generation on whose sensitivities, awareness, and determination depends the outcome of the great confrontation between the forces of totalitarianism and freedom. All the speakers on Wednesday evening were, in fact, men of politics. The Taoiseach was in the chair, and a former minister and long-time luminary of the opposition in Dáileáran, Mr James Dillon, appealed, as he said, over the heads of his colleagues to the student members of the society to go into political life. Another distinguished parliamentarian, the British socialist Michael Foote, stressed the importance in today's world of the small nations. The great nations are losing their power. The great nations are losing their power uh, partly because they cannot provide the answers which civilized men and women demand. And I trust that in uh, these years and decades to come, Senator McCarthy referred to the whole period up to the the next 30 or 40 years, I trust that uh, the smaller nations, amongst uh, whom I include the one that I come from, will combine to say to the world a different doctrine from that which the great nations have taught us. And I must say, I was glad to see in my uh, Burke researches, before the expert speaks, I was glad to see that uh, Edmund Burke wisely looking forward to this occasion, foresaw exactly what should be said at the end. He said that, uh, these are not his words, but he was indicating how liberty and order could flourish together. And he said, England and Ireland may flourish together, and I hope as an honorary Welshman you'll let me include Wales too. But England and Ireland may flourish together. The world is large enough for us both. <laughs> Let it be our care not to make ourselves too little for it. The danger for Ireland having expelled the English and the danger for England having lost her empire, I'm very glad to say, the danger for both of us is that we should become uh, too parochial, too obsessed with our own immediate problems, 
and unaware of the fact that uh, England and Ireland and Wales have something to say to the whole wide world, and we should say it more forthrightly than ever. We should say it in the language of Burke I've quoted at the end instead of the motion which was put at the beginning. Dr. Conor Cruz O'Brien, himself a former member of the Society, referred back to uh, Senator McCarthy's mention of recent rediscoveries of uh, animal aggressiveness and its relevance for social human behaviour, but he refused to accept this as a last word. The problem of giving liberty and order the kind of content in practice that we associate with them in theory is a problem of coping with human aggressiveness. And this is, in fact, our greatest problem, our greatest problem within ourselves and within our society. The problem is not the weapons. The problem is the people who will use the weapons, the people who are sufficiently bent on their purposes so to do. Is man, as some of these writers say, incurably predatory? Capitalism is then an appropriate creed for such an animal, an appropriate system. It is a system based on some such hypotheses. Also, imperialism is. Is it more reasonable to assume, that, as I do assume, that man can bring his predatory impulses under rational and social control on a planetary scale, as he has already, to some extent, within the limits of a few communities, which tried mainly small communities, which try to work under a rule of law. I think if we are to go on living with any hope, we must be making that kind of assumption and trying to work in that direction. This is one manner, and it is to me the most acceptable manner, of interpreting the idea of liberty connected with order. And it is in that sense I support it. It is not unattainable. Man is an intelligent as well as an aggressive being, and can inhibit tendencies which threaten the survival of the species. I am sorry if I use a jargon which must jar on the ears of my friend Eugene McCarthy, but I think, as I say, it has some relevance. Capitalism, authoritarianism, bureaucracy, and imperialism represent clumps of such tendencies, and their elimination is possible. On a planetary scale, this is a long way off, a very long way off. We are not near it at all. None of us will see it. Our children are not likely to see it. The world, as a result, in the main, of what kind of people we are, and particularly those who wield power on the planet, and in part because of the overcrowding, the so-called population explosion, the world population is heading towards enormous disasters. And here I would like to protest against the irresponsibility of those who argue against rational control of population growth. Those those who are telling us, in effect, that the only checks on population They never say it in words. They can only mean it in fact. It is the logical implication of their words that the only checks on population must be the 
well-known natural checks of famine, plague, and war. Planner, on a planetary scale, this is a long way off. We can work for it locally now. We can study and promote the study of the workings of greed and aggression in ourselves, in our institutions, and in society. These are tasks of the psychologist and the sociologist, the economist, the zoologist. We can try to bring these manifestations under a greater degree of democratic social control. These are tasks of the citizen and of the politician, hoping always that the politician will bear in mind Bacon's remark about his own nature. We should try to understand the role of myth, ritual, and drama in our personal lives and in our, in our society, and to release the creative instead of the destructive potential of these. These are tasks which involve artists, writers, and religious thinkers, as well as other citizens. Socialism, not a 19th century form of socialism, but a form suitable to the knowledge, capacities, and problems of the 20th century. An idea of socialism which could draw on the insights not merely of Marx, but on, of, on those of writers as remote from Marx as Edmund Burke. This could be a socialism preparing, for the, preparing within the 20th century for the 21st century. It is in that sense that I would support the view of favoring a liberty connected with order. Thank you. Listen now to another statement on the problem of controlling private aggression and an appeal to work in order for the common good, outlined within the microcosmic framework of the College Historical Society on one famous occasion. Dark and gloomy as are our prospects, I do not yet despair of the Republic. Let us but set ourselves seriously to the work of reformation. In pointing out what I have thought wrong in our past proceedings, I have, in effect, laid down the rules which I would have you pursue. Fly like the pestilence, the spirit of private quarrel. If any troublesome and petulant member breaks the good order of the society with his personal resentment, instantly re remove the evil thing from amongst you and dismiss him to his proper station, the bear garden. Let not the sacred fire of your resentment be dragged forth on every trivial occasion, nor the censure of this society be a weapon in the hands of every peevish individual who may raise himself into imaginary consequence on the stilts of an impeachment. Be assiduous in history. Be bold yet temperate in debate. Be candid and cautious on the merits of compositions. Think of your past glories, the infamy of desertion, the greatness of the reward, the easiness of acquisition. This do and ye shall live. Omit it and ye are nothing. The speaker, Theobald Wolfe Tone. On Thursday evening, Professor Arby MacDowell gave a fascinating talk on personalities in the hist. And one of the most interesting parts of it was uh, when he talked about Tone and his circle. Uh, I, I, I rather tend to dwell on Tone for, for, for three reasons. As we know, first of all, as we know, this society lives from crisis to crisis. I would prefer perhaps to change, indeed, the preposition and say lives on crisis to crisis. 
Without a crisis, the society would find life uh, somewhat uh, uh, monotonous. Now, uh, but on the other hand, there's one great point about a crisis in the College Historical Society. It mustn't go on too long or it becomes boring. And uh, Tom was responsible for putting an end to one of our early crises. It's not, a plural, it's not a plural I like to handle. The, uh, and uh, secondly, of course, Tone was an embodiment of, of, of two types of man which the society prides itself on producing. He was a man of action and a man of ideas. The, uh, the, uh, I, I, I mean, he was an able uh, politician and soldier, and he, was, and he was a very successful writer, producing one of the great, in his diary, one, I think, of the great literary masterpieces of the 18th century. Uh, thirdly, he was one of a very interesting and very brilliant circle. All, I won't want to repeat this term about each of them, have a surprisingly fine speaker. Now, let me just remind you, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the names, let me remind you of, 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 of the members of Tone's circle. Uh, there was Stokes, there, there was uh, Miller, uh, there was Plunkett, there were McGee, just to take a few. Now, I, uh, Pl- uh, Stokes was one of those amiable and somewhat eccentric men who from time to time appear in academic life. And uh, he, uh, he was a very, he was, his politics tended to be left-wing. Uh, uh, they, uh, uh, they, uh, they, uh, he was a United Irishman. But at the same time, he strove to make the Irish poor Protestants, saying they wouldn't object to his activities because they'd realised the good intention behind them. He answered Paine on theology, he answered Malthus on population, he helped to found the Dublin Zoological Society, and when Lord Clare conducted his celebration of co- visitation of Trinity, and every member of the college was asked certain questions, uh, uh, Stokes, as a fellow, was asked, did he know of any illegal organisations in college? He said, yes, the United Irish Clubs, he believed, existed, and orange societies. Claire apparently gave him one long look. And then he was also asked, uh, why had he uh, uh, reported to the Lord Lieutenant atrocities committed by the military, and not those committed by the insurgents? And Stokes' reply was that the Lord Lieutenant would hear plenty about the latter, but mightn't hear about the former. (laughs) However, Claire had the last word. Judges always have. When it came, when he began to distribute penalties, he simply said that Stokes was silly uh, rather than ill-intentioned, he'd just suspend him from fellowship for three years. Uh, the, as for Miller, belonged to a slightly different school of thought. He was indeed, he, as I shall show in a moment, he was a strong conservative. He was at school with, with, with Wolf Tone, and they formed a small debating club. But it didn't go on for long because the members, being honest schoolboys, found they hadn't sufficient information to support their debates, a factor which has never militated against the activities of this society. <laughs> um, and, well, uh, Tone and Miller remained friends when they both were in college. Miller became a fellow, and on one occasion, Tone asked him to take them both into the fellow's garden to have a quiet talk. And Miller turned to Tone and said, I'm very surprised that you should claim an aristocratic privilege. And Tone replied, Miller, an aristocracy is a very good thing when you're in it. Uh, now, uh, when Miller, Miller became, uh, in time, assistant professor of history, then professor of history, and produced 84 lectures covering the whole course of European history. Uh, I may say he started with a small intelligent audience and then had a very large audience in the end listening. I think, as far as I can make out, by a cursory glance, the aim of the lecture is just to show that there was a providential, uh, providence presided over the evolution of European history, and one of the, more, the strongest proofs of that was the results of the Battle of Waterloo. 
uh, they, in fact, one could say about Miller, which was said, said about Allison, that he, in 20 volumes he expounded the, the, the view that Providence was on the side of the Tories. Um, uh, Miller, Plunkett was, of course, a master of that style of oratory of which I suppose the last great exponent was Mr. Asquith. That is uh, extraordinary clarity, extraordinary, extraordinary massive uh, uh, assemblage of his material, producing a tremendous effect of, of... of purity and force. I mean, he, he was, a, to me, he was an astoundingly impressive orator, both in College Green and at Westminster. Now, there were a number... Finally, of course, there was McGee. Now, McGee became Archbishop of Dublin. There is a superb picture of him in the common room, uh, in all the pride of the establishment. And those of you who remember his bust in the long room of the college library will remember the superbly arrogant tilt of his head. As a matter of fact, he, he, as a, uh, McGee's friends always explain that the reason why he carried his head at this arrogant angle was not pride, but the fact he suffered from nose bleeding. One regrets that one can't reproduce the whole of Professor MacDowell's very entertaining talk. Now, on Friday evening, there was a debate on the motion that Emmett's epitaph be now written. It was held under the chairmanship of Mr. Justice Kingsmill Moore, and the Thornishter. Mr. Erskine Childers uh, spoke, as many others did, of the problem of national disunity, the problem of partition. And he said that Emmett's epitaph could not yet be written because, he said, quoting Sir James Craig, first Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, Time must pass before unity comes. And I would remind you of Sir James Craig's words. He said... In this island, we cannot live always separated from one another. We are too small to be apart, or for the border to be there for all time. The change will come, not in my time, but it will come. A very strange prophecy from the first Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, and one that we shall never forget, and one that we should remind the Unionist Party that that promise, that statement was made by Sir James Craig at a very critical time. Or I might remind you of the poll taken by the Belfast Telegraph some two or three years ago, privately conducted by, I think, Sir Henry Gallup organisation. Its method of assessment wasn't seriously questioned, and it found that I think some 47 or over 40% of the Unionists, when questioned privately, said that they recognised that partition must end someday. I mention that in passing. Now, in a recent discussion and debate in the Dáil that has taken place at various times through questions being asked and through speeches being made, we must remember that the overwhelming majority of our own people subscribed to the Taoiseach's statement that he made in Tralee in September when he said, it will remain our earnest aim and hope to win the consent of the majority of the people in the six counties to means by which the North and South can come together in a reunited and sovereign Ireland, earning international respect both for the fairness and efficiency with which it is administered and for its contribution to world peace and progress. And ladies and gentlemen, until that aim is realised, Emmett's epitaph cannot be written.
Now, our next... I next want to say a few words about what I believe are to be genuine social, economic and political advantages in unity. And I say this in all seriousness. I'm quite aware of the economic difficulties of reunion. I nevertheless believe profoundly that when we realize that uh, we will be joining the European Economic Community in two or three or four years, that regardless of our voting power expressed in the terms of the way in which we join, we'll be a minor member. When we realize that we'll be exporting as a people goods to some 200 million Europeans, when we realize the problems that will inevitably arise for a small nation as ourselves, I can't help believing that a common constitutional bond between the North and the South would result in better organization for the stimulation of our exports. A specialized organization that should result in more goods being exported if it was designed and carried out and promoted by an all-Ireland government. I believe that when tariffs largely disappear between Great Britain and Ireland, and between Europe and Ireland, it will be all the more important for a country like ours to think together on the problems that face us in the European economic community. And I do believe that there is an economy of scale to be considered when we think of the development of the island as a whole. And we think of the interests that we should share. We think of the larger home market associated, as I've said, with a, a forceful development of industry, a common approach in agriculture, in regional planning, in the road transport structure of the country, in health administration, in cultural development, and in the inevitable problem whereby we see more and more a policy of regionalization and at the same time the necessity of preserving the vitality of the smaller units within the region. And I believe in these things and I realize there's an economic price to be paid. But I've always had faith that the country as a whole could do these kind of jobs better than truncated, and I always shall believe it. Mr John Hume urged that when we speak of the peaceful reunification of Ireland, we should face up to the hard realities involved in this. We have talked of Ireland, and tears have filled many eyes as people talked of Ireland and as people looked at their flag and so forth. Nobody ever stopped to ask what was meant by Ireland. Was it just this piece of earth that we're all living upon? Or was it the flag to which we all owe allegiance? And of course it's neither of those things, because Ireland purely and simply is its people. It is not just a piece of earth. And it's people of varying traditions and varying backgrounds who together form the entity that is known as Ireland. And when we talk of unity of Ireland, we really mean community of its people. And by the same token, when we view our country in this light, the border is not a line on a map to be eradicated by whatever means we can. The border is a mental border between people. And if we're seeking unity of the country, which means unity of the people, it means that we must be tackling this mental border that is built on fear and on prejudice and on misunderstanding. And the only way to wipe that out is by developing 
understanding and friendship. And this is the real task, ladies and gentlemen, that faces anyone who genuinely wants to solve the Irish problem. The weakness of that point of view is that it is undramatic, but its virtue is that it is the only way. And if we look too at the origins of the northern state, we see that this view that I present can only be confirmed. Because when we look at its origins, what in fact happened? The orange card was played. And reaction to it in the north was predictable and understandable, but unfortunate, in that it meant that those who were opposed to a separate state in the north played into the hands of those who played the orange card by acting or reacting predictably. And it has meant that nationalism and things Irish have become equated with one religious viewpoint. The result has been, arising out of that, that the divisions in Ireland have been strengthened and deepened and have been to the advantage only of those who have been prepared to use sectarianism as a political weapon. And as long as sectarianism is used as a political weapon on this island, then so long will this country remain divided. And indeed it's rather puzzling to me that in spite of the many lessons of history, it is inevitable that Indeed, it's puzzling to me that in spite of the many lessons of history that this was allowed to happen, and indeed that similar things could even happen today. Because the lessons of history are that any person who wants to achieve a political viewpoint through extreme means is usually met by an extreme reaction. And in meeting them with such an extreme reaction, all you do is strengthen their point of view and make it almost certain that they will achieve it. That same danger exists in the north of Ireland today, and we must not allow ourselves to fall into the trap. The extremism of right-wing unionism must not be met with extremism. It must be met instead with firm and strong moderation. And the more extreme they become, the more firm must we be in our moderation, and the more moderate must be our reaction, because extremism when it breeds extremism, wins out in the end. And by returning extreme, or by reacting extremely to the extremism of right-wing unionists today, either in the north or in the south, we are only playing into their hands. Because in the last analysis, reason and reason only will solve the Irish question. Passion never will. And indeed, not only in the northern part of Ireland have the reactions to the setting up of the northern state being unfortunate. Because what has happened as a result of the playing of the orange card and as a result of the reaction playing into their hands, we have now two confessional states in Ireland, neither of which is worthy of the best in the Irish people. And what we must now be striving for and set our sights upon it is a pluralist Ireland, one which will be richer for the full participation of our different traditions. And it must also be a tolerant Ireland, and tolerant not only in religion and in constitutional structures, 
but tolerant of dissent. And it must be clear and made clear that no one person or no one group has the right to claim ownership of the national conscience. No group has a surplus of Irishness. And indeed, there are too many who pretend that they or their group are the possessors of the national conscience or the possessors of all things Irish. And once again, a voice from the past breaks through. It may be but the dream of an enthusiastic heart, but I do believe that the time will come when faction shall flee away and dissension shall be forgotten, when Ireland's orators and Ireland's statesmen shall only seek their country's good, when law shall be respected and yet liberty maintained, when in all her borders shall be neither wasting nor violence and no complaining in her streets. And when I contemplate this society collecting and training those youthful and ardent spirits whose practised powers may yet achieve this good, when I think that through the instrumentality of this society my country may be blessed, my soul rises with the grandeur of the vision. Isaac Butt, auditor of the College Historical Society at the end of the session 1832-33. to But it is, I think, to one of his successors that we must go for the final word with which we end this commemoration of the Society's bicentenary, perhaps the noblest words ever spoken in the long history of the Society. The speaker, Thomas Davis. Gentlemen, you have a country. The people among whom we were born, with whom, if our minds are in health, we have most sympathy... Are those over whom we have power? Power to make them wise, great, good. Reason points out our native land as the field for our exertions and tells us that without patriotism, a profession of benevolence is the cloak of a selfish man. 